I'm going to start in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, and read down through the end of the chapter. So, starting verse 12 through the end of the chapter. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12 says this, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving, deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. To this charge, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Let's take a moment and pause there and pray. I want to ask that God does in us what we can't do in ourselves. We can open our hands and we can put our, ourselves in a position to receive from him, uh, but let's ask that he's a good father and speaks to us. Let's pray. Well, Father, we've greeted one another this morning, and we've sung songs, we've prayed, and we've given. But here now, in this moment, as we desire to be faithful to and to order our lives according to Scripture, God, I pray that you'd speak. I pray that we would have an awareness of who we are and our surroundings and what is closing in on us. We pray, God, that encouragement would come, that grace would come, that mercy would flow. So, Father, as I teach and as I think and as we share these moments together, would you encourage and bless and build up your church. I believe that you desire that more than we desire to be built up. So move in our midst. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The question that may come up as we get into 1 Timothy, if you take seriously, which you should, the exhortation and the commands that Paul is giving to Timothy, the reality 
that there are many who have fallen off into different doctrines. There are many who have devoted themselves to myths and endless genealogies, things that swayed them from the stewardship of the gospel, people who have wandered off into and gotten lost in a foggy world of vain discussion, people who have been proud, bold idiots, that that's a reality and happens in our midst, then more than that, if and because we ought to believe that the law was laid down to expose sin, which we all have, that we see around us, if it leaves us without excuse, if and because we should take these commands seriously, that Timothy needs to be on guard and watch these things closely because none of us are immune to these kind of things. As we read in, yes, we're thousands of years into the future, but the question remains, are we immune to these kind of problems? Has something fundamentally changed in the human heart? Have we figured out what they hadn't figured out? The answer is, of course, no, we haven't figured it out. We are not immune to these things. So we should sit up in our chairs, and I think that we should be thinking How do we avoid this, and what do we do to be faithful and to call people to be faithful? And I guess, my guess is that Timothy is is feeling this as well. So the question at the outset of this might be something like this, how is it possible for one to remain faithful? How could Timothy possibly steward the gospel well in the midst of a landscape like this? There are serious battles going on. And sometimes what you need when there are serious battles going on is to hear from someone, to hear their story. Someone else's story can be a balm to wounds. Someone else's story can inspire hope, can make you feel connected to them in a particular way. And it's here in the middle of 1 Timothy after coming right out of the gate. 1 Timothy just shoots out of the gate. This book does not pull punches from the outset about the seriousness of the task that Timothy's engaged in. And now to encourage him and to remind him, Paul gives his story, his testimony is a word you may have heard before. Paul wants to explain something to Timothy. Timothy, if you're going to make it through, you've got to figure out who you are. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about who I am. That's what this story is. Of, of the numerous places in the New Testament where Paul recounts his story, this is one of the most succinct and I believe the most powerful. This is a God-ordained, Spirit-inspired, back-in-my-day moment in Timothy from Paul to his child in the faith. And I think sometimes this question of who am I and where have I come from and what do I value and what makes me me and what am I after in life is so underrated. We need a greater self-awareness that our identity is a constant battle in our souls. Questions like this, what is the most important thing about you? If someone asks you who you are, what do you say? What are the things about you that most 
describe not only what is important to you, but most important about you. How much could we take away and you remain? Do you have self-awareness about what really animates you? What are you committed to? When you get a moment by yourself, what joys are you drawn to? These kind of questions have been happening your entire life. Who am I? And how do I explain what I'm doing here in this world? And how do I know when I'm in danger of losing something vital to who I am? I think a lot of us, you know, imagine identity is something maybe that middle schoolers struggle with. And here's the reality, middle schoolers struggle with it. I can remember distinctly moments in my life when I go back of things that I, I just hung my hat on and said, I guess that's who I am. I can also remember distinctly moments where I was shaken and I didn't know who I was. I don't know if you know this, but middle schoolers are, are some of the most insightful, joyful, creative, and powerfully mean people on the planet. Do <laughs> you know this? And this is a consistent reality. I grew up in a small town. I say this all the time. I grew up in a town of 300 and lived in the suburbs of that town. And after my eighth grade year, I had to be shipped into the big city to go to ninth grade. And one of my first days there, I'm at the lunch table. I knew a couple kids from basketball that I'd played on these teams with. So I go and I sit down with them. And there at the lunch table, across the way, maybe a person or two away, is another young man who was infamous at the school. Infamous for getting in fights and bullying people randomly. I can't remember his name. It was Billy or Bob or Biff Tannen or, or something like that. I don't remember his name, but that's essentially the picture. And in the midst of this conversation, he got up a few times and he came back and he sat down and there was a, a little discussion going on. I mean, you can imagine what, what a 14-year-old boys talk about at the table. I don't know. Probably who can get the most pepper in their nose or something stupid. And that was my moment. There was a moment, a window just opened, and I inserted myself. You know, I came from this small town. Our class had less than 30 kids, and now I'm in this school where our ninth grade class was 350 to 400, and, I'm, and so I'm just going to make my way. It's a little opening, and I insert my witticism, which I have to say, in my defense, was, was well-timed. It was, it was well-positioned. I think it fit the conversation well. I, I, don't, I don't believe, looking back, that anything was wrong with my introduction in the moment. But it was in that moment when Biff over here just flicks something in my direction from his food table and then looks around at everybody else and says, who is this? And then curses a few times. And there's just silence at the table because this is a kid who, he like kicks people and stuff. And that silence went on for a couple of minutes and then the bell rang and then everybody had to go and I remember being shaken more than I thought that I could be shaken. I'm just walking through thinking like, I don't know, I'm a confident person, here's who I am. I'm, I'm, I'm an Olam and I have two parents and then I have some brothers and sisters and I come from, from Manville and I do these things. 
But that, that basic statement said so just derisively, who is this? Blank, blank, blank. That question, it really rattled me. I can remember other moments that were far more encouraging. Times when I was hanging out at the YMCA, waiting for my mom to get back from some meeting, and I was playing basketball with a whole bunch of kids. And on the other side of the gym was a high school varsity player. And for fifth grade me, he was basically God. I can remember the moment when I was standing outside in front of that YMCA waiting for my mom to come pick me up. And he walked out, and he's walking by me. And I'm looking up. And he takes a few steps past me, and then he stops, and he comes back. And he daps me up. You know, dap, dap up means, you know what I mean? He daps me up, and he asks my name. And he says, hey, I watched you from across the gym. You were awesome. You should keep playing. Are you going to play for our school? Cool. Maybe I'll see you around. And he walked away. And then if you would have asked me, well, who, who am I? I would have thought, I am Michael Jordan incarnate. <laughs> I can remember moments when my parents spoke encouragingly to me. Siblings youth pastors, people saying, what if I see this in you? Who are you? What are you committed to? Is that what you're about? I can remember moments when people called me back from things that I shouldn't have been about. But all of us are engaged in a constant battle of self-awareness. Who am I and what makes up the most important things about me? Everybody's got to hang their hat somewhere. And I believe this passage in 1 Timothy is about where to hang your hat and how you know what it means to be you, who gets to define who you are. There's been a series of discussions that we did in January on a, on a book about self. And it's interesting, there's a philosopher named Philip Reef, who writes, who is written about in that book by Carl Truman, and he, he gave an attempt, and it's, it's absolutely not perfect, but I think it's helpful in many ways to describe throughout history the way people have identified themselves and said, this is who I am and what's important. He identifies categories like this, and this might help you to, to get at sort of what I'm thinking about when I say, who are you, and what does it mean to be you, and what is your, where does your value come from? Reef said that, you know, going back to Greek society, that there's something called political man. And a lot of people find their identity in what he called the polis. This would have been civic life. Now, it doesn't only mean a political party or that kind of thing, although that society definitely pioneered many of those concepts, but it also means things like a rotary club or volunteerism. But civic life. Your involvement there, or maybe more than that, civic life's willingness to accept you in 
was how many people identified themselves. If you said, who are you, they would begin to rattle off the way that they engaged in civic life. He then traces down and says there's been other moments in history where it shifts from political man to religious man. And again, these are not going to be categories that cannot be passed over. Many of us feel and sense many of these, but he describes people as religious. That fundamentally, if you ask someone who they are, they would define themselves based on which group or which tradition or which routines and modes of worship they engaged in. He then says that there have been times in history, perhaps the Industrial Revolution marking it the most poignantly, that people have described who I am and what's most important about me chiefly in economic terms. This is economic humanity. So when you ask someone, what's your value and who are you and what does this mean, they might say something about what they make or their job or their skills. Or maybe I could just say it more pointedly and maybe more to the heart, they would describe themselves by what they earn. So you feel good about who you are and you're accepted based on what you've gathered or your capacity for gathering. Reef then also makes the point that it seems like in our day and age, in addition to hanging on, I think we still hang on to many of these categories That would be my commentary on it. I believe we hang on to many of these categories. He says what he has identified is that more or less so many of us now take our cues from and identities from what he calls psychological man. And that is, is that our identification, our deepest need, our greatest longing has to do with our self-esteem. That our inner life must be preserved at all costs. And rather than gathering identity from out there, we give our identity from in here, from from within us. I think what Paul's going to say, I think what 1 Timothy's going to say is that none of those are sufficient that all of those need to be reoriented around a greater reality, a greater answer to the question, who am I? Because the Apostle Paul was engaged in a lot of life. He was not a disengaged kind of man. He would not have been accused of laziness prior to coming to know Jesus. And what he's going to do, starting in verse 12 of 1 Timothy chapter 1, is he's going to describe himself in particular terms. He's going to give Timothy a reminder through his own testimony of what is most important and how to look at yourself. It's as though Paul says, every other, every other selfie mirror that you have has been distorted in some way. You're using county fair mirrors to judge yourself. Paul describes what it was like when he finally was given a proper view, a proper self-assessment. So this question, these these questions who, are going to be found throughout this. Paul wants to describe who he is. Maybe that's a question for you. You could apply it, who am I? And then in order to get there, we're going to describe and he's going to find who God is. 
So not only who am I, but who is God? And then finally, he's going to tell Timothy, this is who you need to be. There's an outward service of others kind of orientation here. So let me describe with Paul who he was, what he considered to be his story. If you asked him, what is most important about you? Who are you, Paul? Who is this? And I know this is true because he does it over and over and over again. He has to stand in front of the rulers of the known world. He stands in front of King Agrippa, and he stands in front of the rulers and judges, and they essentially look at the people who dragged him in there, and they say, who is this? I don't think they were mean, but they kind of biffed tan in him, right? What are you in front of my court for? And he gives more or less this account every single time. Oh, you want to know who I am? Let me tell you who I am. This is how Paul describes himself. He said in verse 12 that he was given strength. This just means that in his, his own identification or his own ability previously, he was weak. We can learn from Paul. All of us are more weak than we think we are. And spend your whole life trying to prop up areas of weakness. I believe that Paul would say, no, no, here's the first step. Here's the first step in identifying yourself. Admit that you're weak. So he says at the outset, I thank him who gave me strength. Second, Paul says, this is how you could describe me, I was judged faithful. Christ Jesus our Lord judged me faithful. Now this word judged me means appointed or reckoned. It's a very similar word to how he's appointed to service. It means reckoned faithful. In other words, Paul says, oh, you know how I got my faithfulness? It was just given to me. God came to me in my unfaithfulness, and he reckoned me faithful. Not that I was faithful. Also, Paul says, I have been given an appointment. I've been commissioned. I didn't set myself up in this gig. He's reiterating what he said at the beginning of 1 Timothy chapter 1. I am here as an apostle by a command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. I have been appointed to this service, not merited. I didn't earn my way here. What I have has been given. But more than that, an appointment means a commission. So Paul feels in him not just an appointment as a a give or take, but he recognizes that God had the right to appoint him to this service. He has been commissioned. He can't just give it up. More than that, here's a list of the things that Paul says that he is or was. He was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. If you're not familiar with Paul's story, he was previously referred to as Saul, and he was one of the most infamous persecutors, hunters really, of early Christianity and stood by while many were stoned, beaten, and died. We often don't give much stock to this. I think to think about we, here, we think about the way that Paul has to wrestle with his former sins, but think about what it would have meant for the early church to be ministered to by this man. My friend Josh, who pastors at Forks East, he wondered aloud 
whether or not in the years following Paul's conversion and then his ministry as an apostle, if he didn't sometimes pop into a church where people remembered the moments that their family member was put to death and he stood by. So we read this with a kind of distance. He was insolent, he was a persecutor. You know that Paul, he was very zealous. But for those to whom he would have been writing, families where the faith would have been passed down, they likely would have had an interaction and a fear of him in a much different way. They would have known the depth of this sin. It's interesting when Paul describes himself and says who he is, when he has to tell his story every time, he always includes these things. He doesn't just give his strengths, like the job interview, tell me your greatest weaknesses. I work too hard and I care too much, right? That's the, that's the joke. Here, explain your weaknesses. Paul says, well, I, um, I blasphemed God as a job. I was the best at it. Uh, here's what I did. I, I sought out and I persecuted Christians the best that I possibly could. Anywhere that they turned, I stood in their way. I tried to harm them. In fact, many times we were successful and I killed them. He mentions these things to remind people the depth of his sin and also to remind them that he was the kind of man who had received mercy. It's sinners like that. This is the crazy teaching of Scripture. This is the persistent, otherworldly hope of the Bible. The worst kind of sinners can receive mercy. The worst kind. All of the ones that we've given up on, they can and do receive mercy. So, Paul, in the same statement about who he is, not only describes the depth of his sin, but also the depth of the mercy that he received. He said, I received mercy and grace and love. And then he rejoices in. He can't tell his story. He can't say who he is without rejoicing in this, what he calls trustworthy and deserving statement. This statement that should be fully accepted. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. The word here is, uh, is really the, the root word for prototype. Paul says, I, I'm, a, I'm a prototypical sinner. I was a model in many ways for the way that people could sin. How far they were from God. And this is a true statement. Paul wants to rejoice in this. It's those kind of people that receive mercy and grace and love. Paul goes on to say, I'm just one example. I'm an example of the way that God can rescue people who are far from Him. Who are you? Someone might say to Paul. He says, well, let me tell you. I am undeserving, and I'm sinful, and I'm far weaker than you'd ever imagine, and I've done things that could barely be named that have haunted me, the kind of stuff that leave scars. I've done those things, and yet God made in me the greatest example, a wonderful example of how He can give mercy and grace and love to people exactly like that. In fact, I would add here that God only can give grace and mercy and love to people like 
that. You receive grace when you know that you need it. There's a testimony from a man named Thomas Bilney. Now, Thomas Bilney was a Roman Catholic priest who taught and then was converted by his understanding of Scripture, and he was engaged in these kind of things just about the same time as a much more famous person was doing similar things. You know of Martin Luther, but Thomas Bilney was a contemporary. Thomas Bilney's story upon reading this particular verse is significant, I think. He says this, about the sentence that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, he says this, this one sentence, through God's instruction and inward working, which I did not then perceive, said God was working in him before he even know it, knew it, this sentence exhilarated my heart. I had been wounded with the guilt of my sins, and I had been almost in despair. But then, upon reading, immediately I seemed unto myself to have an inward marvelous comfort and quiet. And this inward comfort and quiet, he says, it was almost as if my bruised bones had leapt for joy. He borrows from Psalm 51. And after this, after reading this moment, is this true? Is this a trustworthy statement that God can save sinners and give mercy? He says, after reading this and realizing its truth, that the Scriptures then began to be more pleasant unto me than honey or the honeycomb. Thomas Bilney read in the testimony of Paul a truth that exhilarated his soul and made him realize that his greatest need and his ultimate greatest identity was going to be found in Christ as one who had received mercy. A number of years later, in 1531, Thomas Bilney was convicted of heresy and crimes against the church and was executed publicly. Paul has been completely and utterly repositioned with a new perspective on who he is. He is one who needed and received mercy through Jesus Christ. There's no other identity that takes precedence over this. There's two sides to this. The gospel encourages and lifts up the despairing and the downtrodden, and the gospel convicts and breaks down the heart of heart. So I would say this. If you are a kind of person who, upon hearing Paul's story, thinks to yourself, I'm so glad I'm not as bad as he was. I can say with certainty to you, you need mercy. And I pray that your eyes would be awakened to the depth of the need of your mercy more than you have ever, ever been awakened to it. There is no one, no matter what you've built your identity upon, there is no one who is strong no one who is holy, no one who is perfect, no one impressive 
And here is the, the good news, that you can be softened in heart. You can admit your need of mercy and God will respond. That's one side of the coin. The other thing magnificent about the gospel, though, is that it tells some of us who believe that maybe we're too far gone. Maybe I've just been faithless one too many times. I haven't paid attention. I'm not very good at these things. I have been unable to confess the depth of my sin because it would be so shameful. And the wonder of this truth is for you as well, there is no one too far gone. Paul was the greatest of sinners in his day. He says, I am the foremost, the prototypical. And I received mercy. You can be forgiven for the most grotesque, the most unthinkable, the most persistent, the most addictive, the most habitual sin. Jesus came into this world to save sinners. And on that statement, Paul says, I stake my entire identity. This is who I am. In finding out who he is, he has also declared to us who God is. And it's this identity sharing, this realization, this awaking to what it means to have the image of God that allows us to think rightly on who God is. Calvin famously opened his Institutes of the Christian Religion, which he began writing at the age of 19 or 20, which makes us all feel very inadequate, or at least me. And this work starts with his, his statement of how he begins his entire work of theology the greatest statement of doctrine he says an awareness and an understanding of God starts with an awareness of self, of who we are. In other words, we must humble ourselves, get out of our own way, let go of the things that we've been holding, and what we find then is not only do we learn who we are, but we will finally see who God is. Here's a few of the things that Paul's declared about who God is. He says, God is Lord of all. He rules. He says this, God is the judge. He is the one that can reckon and appoint people to service. If you cannot earn it, and it's not based on merit, then on the other side, there is someone who can appoint and declare, and that is who God is. More than that, Paul says, let me tell you who God is. God is one who can give mercy and grace and love without end. God delights to give mercy. He not only will, but He loves to. He doesn't just say, okay, fine. But He delights. When His children come to Him and they ask for mercy, for grace, and for love, He delights. He has an endless store of these things. And Paul says that because my sin was so deep, I needed deep mercy, deep grace, deep love, and it turns out that God has an endless store of these things. Here's Luther commenting on the way that God is unending in His grace and in His mercy. 
It says, just as the sun is not darkened by the whole world enjoying its light and could indeed light up ten worlds, just as 100,000 lights made might be lit from one light and not detract from it, just as a learned man is able to make a thousand others learned, and the more that he gives, the more that he has, so is Christ our Lord an infinite source of all grace. And if the whole world would draw enough grace and truth from it to make all the world angels, he says, yet Christ's grace would not lose a drop. It is a fountain that always runs full over. God is an endless store of patient forgiveness and grace to those who would humble themselves and come to him. He's made this possible because God is not only judge and Lord and ruler and gracious and kind, but he is present. Paul says, Jesus came into the world. He is a personal God who pays attention to you and longs to forgive you. In order to give Timothy encouragement, Paul describes who he is and then reminds him who God is. And the funny thing about Paul sometimes is he gets so worked up, almost like in a trance. Have you ever been in the zone in something? And I don't even, it doesn't even have to be something, like even in Candy Crush or whatever it is. You know what it's like to just get lost in something, to get in the zone? I remember the first time I got lost in something when I was reading, probably 11 or 12, I read the book Homeward Bound. And I remember just waking up like 12 chapters into the thing and, and being a little bit scared, like, where was I? What just happened? What is going on? I was, I was wrapped in it. The funny thing about the Apostle Paul is that sometimes he just gets wrapped in his descriptions of God. He's teaching, and you can almost just see it building. He's riding along, he's riding along, and he's saying what God is like and how he's given mercy to him and how he became an example of perfect patience to those who desire eternal life. And then in verse 17, it's like he just has to go off. He just gets lost. He's in a trance of God and his might and his glory. And so he gives this sentence that is such a wonderful proclamation of who God is to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. He even throws an amen in the middle of it. And then it's like he comes to and he's like, what was I doing? Where was I? I am encouraging Timothy. So this charge I entrust to you, Timothy. I had a teacher some 20-plus years ago in a discipleship school that I was in that described when he first became a Christian, he'd been this druggy guy for years and years and years who had rejected basically all rules of life, just an anarchist kind of dude. And he came to know Jesus, and he said in the early days he would get so excited reading the Bible that he, he couldn't sit and hold it. He would have to drop the Bible, and he said he would get on the ground and do push-ups. That's what I view Paul just doing. Like he's describing theology and who God is, and then he's like, hold on, i got to do some push-ups. And he's just... When you admit who you are and place your identity solely in God, what you will receive from Him is a never-ending store of life and vitality. You will have, that's why Paul says, eternal life. It will animate you. Finally, Paul turns back to Timothy. 
He tells them, this is who I was. I want it to be an encouragement. It reminds us of who God is. But he turns back to Timothy, and he wants to encourage Timothy to say, well, who are you? There's a wonderful thing being demonstrated here. When we acknowledge our sin and then receive mercy from God, he then turns us around and commissions us to love others. You know the adage, hurt people hurt people? You heard this before? That when you're in difficult circumstances or you've just been sinned against, then it's sometimes what ends up happening if there's not healing there, that it's so easy for you to turn around and to hurt others. But Paul here opens a window and calls us and beckons us forth and lets us realize that there's a core layer on the other side. Redeemed people, redeem people. Forgiven people, forgive people. Encouraged people, encourage people. And so Paul, in everything in him, he gets done doing push-ups and he says amen and then he turns around and he looks at toward Timothy, and he wants to encourage him and say, now, Timothy, remember who you are. Remember who you are. We'll get to these prophecies previously made about him in another week, but these prophecies made about you, I want to encourage you, remember that you have been placed here, appointed here, you've received mercy, God is with you, and what I want you to do is to remember to hold faith and a good conscience. This is going to be a constant theme throughout the book. These two things held in both hands, faith and a good conscience. Watch your doctrine and your life. Be careful what you think and what you teach, and then be careful how you're living. He gives a stern warning to Timothy. He says, listen, if you neglect the things that you're thinking and what you're reading and what you're teaching, and if you're not remembering who God is properly, and then more than that, if you know who God is, but you continually singe your conscience by walking in the opposite direction, if you reject these truthful things, there is a grave consequence ahead. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander. Previously in 1 Timothy chapter 1, he said twice, certain people. Now he's just naming names. Not in a mean or a judgy or a gossipy kind of way would I ever recommend this. But it does seem like sometimes the Bible recommends that we look at the outcome of stubborn, prideful lives that have rejected God and learn from them. It can be a warning to us. Look at the pain that's been caused here. Proverbs says one time about a lazy person, uh, in Proverbs it says that he walked by and he looked and he saw the field, like the farm and the home of a sluggard. It was overrun with thistles and thorns. There was nothing but want there. And this is what Proverbs says, I looked and I received instruction. What an interesting phrase. I looked at that and I received instruction. In other words, boy, I I don't want that to happen to me. And now here, Paul seems to want Timothy to learn from these men, to see the outcome of them doing what he is asking Timothy to do. They've let go of their faith and they have singed their conscience. and They're now shipwrecked. I don't even know the full weight of this phrase. I don't think we'll know maybe till heaven or something. Paul says, I'm handed them over to Satan 
that they may learn not to blaspheme. But they had become so destructive and so lost and so out of who God designed them to be that they needed to be dealt with simply by rejection and letting go. I think this ending of 1 Timothy chapter 1 is to remind Timothy that this is not a fun personality test that they're out after. When I say this morning, who are you and where is your identity, I don't just mean, do you like dogs or cats? There is a warfare for your soul. And if you would admit your sin and find mercy and grace, you will have eternal life forever. But if you reject these things, and if you push away from the faith, and if you live in a way that your conscience constantly cries out to you about the wrong that you're doing and you ignore it, you will be shipwrecked and lost forever. So I would encourage you, when someone asks you or when you think about Pay careful attention to how you respond to the question, who am I? There's hope there if you find it in Christ, and I pray that you do. Let's pray. God, I ask that there would be encouragement. Just as Timothy received encouragement in a moment when he was maybe fearful or feeling inadequate. God, I know that we feel fearful and inadequate. So many moments in life, God, we don't have it under control. And more than that, our, our own hearts and our own minds are out of control so often. And so I pray this morning that the gospel would not be far from us, not be a routine thing, not just a nice religious saying, but God, awaken us, make us alive, give us strength and vitality to keep holding the faith. And God, give us clear conscience. We desire that. Holy Spirit, please move in us and give us these gifts. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.